This podcast was not produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio, but rather under a kitchen table using a doona as soundproofing. But that doesn't mean the station no longer needs your financial support to stay on air. Our community is not just studios and microphones. It's people. People like yourself, who during COVID-19 value independent community information and creativity more than ever. So, we're counting on you to keep us on air. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and please support our June Station Appeal. Stay safe and thank you for your support. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we're not joined by anyone, Andy. It's just you and me. Oh, God. But uh, we can have a little chat. We can play some music. Uh, a little while ago we put out a call for people to ask us anything. And so I thought I would ask you some questions. Oh, okay. All right. Well. So we've got a bunch of questions, some of them friendlier than others. Uh, question number one. <laughs> Uh, yeah. How do you sleep at night, given you are promoting the globalist open borders agenda? Wow. Um, comes from, that comes from listener Nathan. Oh, thanks, listener Nathan. I don't know if he is a listener, but uh, how do you sleep at night? Usually uh, in my bed uh, would be my answer. I'm not plagued by thoughts of, what was it, globalist open, open borders? borders? Yeah. Uh, no, Uncle George makes sure that, you know, I sleep well at night. Question, correct me if I'm wrong, but fascism as we know it developed in Italy in the 20th century. What were the far-right movements and ideologies that predate it? A little academic one for you. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I should have prepared some notes, Camp. Oh, you didn't know I was going to ask you these. No, that's true. Well, uh, were there proto-fascist movements? Yes. Did they characterise themselves as such? No. But in terms of fascist Italy, Mussolini was able to draw upon his experience as a um, socialist, as a journalist, and critically, I think, capitalising upon the political discontent associated with or in evidence, as as did Hitler in Germany and and, uh, other parts of the world or parts of Europe, uh, the alienation of uh, returned soldiers. They tended to form the core of the Uh, fascist and proto-fascist cadres, but critically, you know, in both Germany and Italy, a kind of temporary alliance was formed between these armed workers and uh, the capitalist class. And I did read a while ago, actually, there's a good book, um, I think it's titled 1923, which examines that year in Hitler's life and Beer Hall Putsch and how it was that he was able to position himself uh, within that far-right movement and secure the support of wealthy industrialists and so on. So, um, yeah, you'd find um, tendencies within Italian society prior to fascism's emergence, which would help explain its success. But beyond that, you'd need to ask an historian of Italian fascism, I expect. Well, maybe we'll do that sometime. Yeah, we probably could, actually. That's one for the the books, Ken. A question here. Why did you start doing this, Andy? Why did I? Hmm. Oh, God. Well, I didn't really intend to. It was about 15 years ago that a group you'd be familiar with, Cam, called Fight Back mm-hmm. uh, formed, and I have had a, a longer-standing interest in, um, I guess, contemporary politics and political ideologies. And when I saw or came across Fight Back, it was something that I was interested in. So I I remember I wrote something which was then published on the site and the feedback I received was, you know, please do more. At that time, I'd also just started the blog with no real 
intention to make it anything other than a place to publish writings on whatever I felt like, which is still the case, but it became evident fairly quickly that there was a, a gap, I guess, in the materials that were being published about the far right in Australia and elsewhere. I felt I had some competency to address it. And over time, um, that's what people seemingly wanted to read and to to know more about. So uh, market demand, camp. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, and also, I think I was somewhat frustrated by the fairly perfunctory nature of a lot of the analysis that was being undertaken. And it's only in the last um, couple of years that there's emerged some more serious uh, scholarship on the question and, um, you know, informed by the emergence of things like Reclaim and the UPF, and but also dramatically the massacre in Christchurch, as well as uh, global trends, um, which have meant that more people are wanting to understand and to take the matter more seriously. And so there's, I guess, opened up more opportunities. And the, the mere fact that I've been looking at this stuff for such a long time means I've built some degree of expertise. And I like to think that the kind of stuff I publish uh, can be regarded as fairly accurate and reliable. I try not to bullshit. Uh, if I do, then it's, you know, should be clear, although it's not always um, when I'm making a joke. But, uh, you know, them's the breaks, I guess. Well, thanks for answering my next question, which was how have things changed? Oh, right, okay. That's really annoying. What, over the last 15 years or? Oh, yeah. Actually, before you get on that, do you remember uh, just bumping into me in the street with a bunch of the Fight Them Back people and saying, are you guys Fight Them Back? <laughs> do, you, do you have any memory of that? I have some vague memory of that. That was really some really good OPSEC, I think, Yeah, that we were practising. Yeah, I don't actually remember that. I'm getting older and, you know, these things just, yeah. I expect as I, as I get older, I'll be, you know, I'll have more moments like this where I'm like, no, I don't remember that. Did that happen? <laughs> have you found that there are more journalists that are interested in following the far right nowadays? Yes. <laughs> and have yeah. you seen a, any marked improvement in the quality of the reportage? Oh, it depends. I mean... I, I guess it's not always the case, but I do make a distinction between what I term more tabloid journalism and more serious or investigative journalism. I think for many journalists looking at this, not all are really in a position to spend a lot of time on it. They've got other demands and like any employee, they have to do what the boss says. So um, it's not. So I wouldn't attribute whatever failings there are simply to... Um, you know, a lack of integrity or whatever. But, you know, a case that springs to mind is the just recently there was a thing in the Herald Sun, shock horror, uh, they're a national socialist in Melbourne. The principal problem I had with that and, and others is um, it mostly functioned as publicity. And unless a journalist, I guess, revealing something about the group or its activities that they might not like to be made public, um, it can simply assume the form of publicity. Or there's another case recently when, you know, every October for the last almost 30 years, Nazis have been organising a gig to commemorate Ian Stuart Donaldson, the founder of uh, Blood and Honour, who died in 93, I think it was. Uh, and that's been going for 30 years. It's, it's held every year. 
Um, there's nothing newsworthy about it in that sense, but the reportage at the time last year claimed that the event didn't go ahead, uh, which was not the case. It did go ahead. And unfortunately, that was not corrected. So, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, yeah, I mean, basically, look, yeah, there are Nazis and there have been in Australia since, you know, the 1930s. And they undergo periods in which they obtain a greater degree of support or not. Um, but they're a constant. And so the fact that they exist is not, shouldn't be shocking. What should be paid attention to is the extent to which they are organised, the extent to which they have managed to insert themselves within broader movements, to wield influence within them, and the extent to which they're seemingly or may give the indication that they're more likely to engage in, um, you know, violence. That's that's the thing that I think should be of most concern. Well, you mentioned the uh, the Blood and Honour concerts, and so I guess that leads into one of these other questions. Uh, how has music changed in importance now that we have online culture? Like, it used to be that gigs were a prime recruiting tool for neo-Nazi groups. Have you found that that is very, not really the case anymore? I think groups like Blood and Honour, I mean, they're well-established. Uh, the people running it and, and Hammerskins, the associated group, uh, you know, they're middle-aged blokes with jobs and kids and I think are less likely to act like a younger bonehead might. But certainly gigs still function as important uh, places where people who have an interest in those politics or those groups can go and meet the guys and they can vet them. And, you know, so they still import, they still perform that important function in terms of how groups structure themselves and how they recruit and so on, which is a little different to what's otherwise termed online radicalisation. So in that case, and uh, maybe the Christchurch killer is an example, but there's uh, you can meet through your propaganda, through using social media, you can reach uh, potentially very large numbers of people. And the intention there is not necessarily to recruit to a particular group or project, it's to try and inculcate those ideas and those individuals, you know, to some extent have the advantage of not being associated with a particular group because there's an understanding also that those groups do come under surveillance, they can be monitored, uh, joining as a formal member can be uh, problematic in that sense. But if what you're wanting to do is to, I guess, radicalise people, um, you don't need them to join a group. So, yeah, music still performs a, an important political function, I mean, like any other, you know, aspect of the industry, there are some problems with that in terms of it used to be the case. And if you look at the history of Blood and Honour, one of the things that made it valuable and why there were disputes and bloody disputes over control of um, the intellectual property was it was a great revenue raiser. That's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that Nazis can produce music from which they make money to fund the movement because so much of it is available for free online. So it has a, a different purpose, which is principally ideological. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Now, Andy, what do you make of the burgeoning academic field in this area? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it a combination? 
Well, I guess to begin with the good, uh, I think anyone who's an honest and competent researcher looking at this question or any other can produce uh, valuable material. Serious studies are useful. I think the one of the drawbacks, I suppose, to the extent that this study is confined to the academic field is very often it's inaccessible to the general public, both because of costs associated with accessing books and journals and other publications, but also because it tends to be written for other academics and it requires a knowledge of the kind of you know jargon and so on. And very often, well, I don't know about very often, but it's it's approached with a different intent it's not so that there's some overlap i suppose and particular scholars may make their political commitments and their opposition to fascism quite explicit and they're valuable others less so i guess the question is that kind of prompts concern is the extent to which this is again uh, insofar as higher education is a market and, su- and subject to market forces Uh, There are those who have had expertise in one area who are now gravitating to this area. And I don't begrudge them that because that's the position you find yourself in as an academic or a scholar. You've, to some extent, got to chase funding and all the rest of it. Uh, But it does call into question, I suppose, insofar as anti-fascism and opposition to these ideologies and movements is dependent upon a certain political commitment. It does draw into question how committed some people are, but in general, it's inevitable. And I guess my hope is that the research that's being produced can be put to good use. What would you say to any researchers who are finding themselves having to listen to Yenar Passaran? (laughs) You poor bastards. I hope you enjoy the show, guys. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I guess the other thing is like, you know, over the years I've conversed with, in one capacity or another, scores of, you know, academics, researchers, journalists. I'm generally happy to do so because, really, it's not for the purposes of publishing or scholarship or career. It's – it's um, and, and, and also, you know, it's about reaching the general public. I, I, I'm quite happy to reach ordinary punks and urbits as opposed to the dean of whatever. That's not really my – intended audience. I, I, I would expect the, the, their appreciation, if, if it's done in a scholarly manner, to proceed from a scholarly basis. So, you know, is, is what we're saying, does what we're saying make sense? Reasonably accurate account of contemporary far-right politics? Those are the main questions, really. Any book recommendations? Yes, but it depends what your interests are, I suppose. I don't know. I've been reading some Walter Mosley recently. I think he's a pretty good writer. Uh, I don't know. It, it depends. Books about what, though, Cam? That, that, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I guess books about fascism and anti-fascism would be appropriate for the show. Yeah. But maybe well, you know, throw, throw in a novel as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, if you're interested in novels, I'd check out, you know, Walter Mosley. You know, there's the, uh, uh, the Oxford Handbook of the Radical Right. <laughs> which Riley and I made a contribution. And um, I have an op- had an opportunity to uh, read it all, but I have read over it, and it's actually quite good, I think. I mean, in terms of like, understanding anti-fascism, Mark Bray's book is pretty good, I think. Um, and a handbook. Yeah. And interestingly, I mean, it's a, you know, Melbourne University Press published a local edition, so it's available. I'm sure you'll find it online, but if you want to pick up a 
printed copies, like $20 or something. I think that's pretty decent. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's things that are kind of, I think, in the works that will be published soon, which will be of particular interest. And I guess also there's the distinction between the academic and popular press. But given the nature of online culture, you'll often find if you look hard, you'll find, you know, at least some of those academic texts that otherwise cost, you know, $200 or whatever it is, probably available through other avenues. I mean, it's quite a broad field as well. I mean, I think Roger Griffin's book that was published a year or two ago, about I think it's called What is Fascism or something, like a, a, a reader or an introduction, I think that's pretty good. I'd recommend that. I think that's a decent uh, attempt to summarise the, I guess, the history and, and contemporary nature of, well, the, the scholarship on the subject. And I'm sure there's other things as well. So, yeah, there's lots. I mean, you know, read. Um and, and read critically and widely is the general advice, I guess. You've got a reader here. Uh, I think some of these questions are trying to get you into trouble. Oh, really? Oh, uh, what, do, what, what do you think of the state of the union movement in Australia? Oh, there is a union movement in Australia. <laughs> oh, look, you know, uh, it's in a pretty parlous state, um, obviously. And I guess while there are some promising developments, I suppose, uh, especially among uh, younger workers who are kind of impatient and should be. <laughs> Maybe something will emerge out of that. But in general, as, as has been the case for the last century, the trade union movement functions as a kind of, and even more closely in the last few decades, as an adjunct of the Labor Party. And until such time as the union movement escapes the control of the Labor Party, I don't see much radical potential. Um, and the other thing is just, I guess, to encourage the development of all forms of workers' resistance to exploitation, which may or may not assume the union form. That's my general opinion. But, you know, there, there are certainly good people, you know, working in the unions, and I wish, I wish them the best of luck. What do you think of the concept of allies? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think I expressed something about this uh in a forum a little while ago, but I guess basically it's not a status that I aspire to or would necessarily accept uh, for various reasons. You know, I, I guess it comes down to it's less about a state of being, of being an ally, but acting like one. And if you do, and if that's your intent to be to have those efforts acknowledged and you are acknowledged as an ally, well, that's great. But you know, the real point is to exercise solidarity with others in common struggle, whatever name is attached to that, and um, to try and just be seriously committed, and um, which includes, you know, all sorts of things. So, and I also kind of, it's a term I became familiar with some time ago as a kind of, I guess I understood it then as a US export coming from a particular political perspective within the United States that is... You know, in some ways useful, but in other ways less so. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, you know, whatever. At the same time, you know, it does, I guess, to the extent that it raises serious questions is about really about it concerns questions of self and other and uh, racialized and gendered others and how it is that someone who doesn't occupy that position or status can express solidarity in a way that's, useful and productive and in that sense I'd, I'd listen to and take seriously the views of those whom you're wanting to act in solidarity with or uh, to be an ally to um, so in any in other words it's less about 
I guess moving the discussion away from one's own position as an ally to what are the actions, what are the ideas that the people you're wanting to ally with regard as being important and serious and paying attention to them. Mm, food for thought, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Are there more questions, Cam? <laughs> oh, I've got one. Oh, yeah, okay. What's Uncle Gnome up to? What's he up to? Well, he's um, he's grown a beard. That's one thing that he's been up to. But I, I, I don't know. Like, I guess, is this in reference to some recent controversy? Or? Oh, oh well, he was being, there was some pretty heavy Chomsky memeing going on this week on Twitter. Because I think somebody had treated him as a sort of argument decider oh, yeah. okay. on the on the Matt Taby article whether oh, it was good, right. good or bad and his right. uh, his one line email response was uh, sort of the argument decider should gnome be our one one line argument decider i think if anyone's going to undertake that role you know i i guess uncle gnome's not a bad choice but generally speaking i think if uncle gnome talks sense that's great if he doesn't then uh, his ideas are to be rejected fair enough uh, I guess finally, Andy, why should people donate to the 3CR Station Appeal? I think they should donate because 3CR is an important community resource and puts to air the views of a, quite a diverse range of peoples who otherwise wouldn't uh, be able to uh, do so. And so, yeah, I regard it as an important community institution um, that does good work. And if people are able to support it, they absolutely should. And they can do so at 3cr.org.au slash donate. And they should do so. And when you do it, say that it's for Yenar Passaran. I have a question for you, Cam. Sure, go ahead. Where did you obtain your doctorate? As you know, Andy, I'm a doctor of love. So I received it at the School of Hard Knocks. Fair enough. Did you graduate from the University of Life, Cam? Or are you still studying? I went to the TAFE of life. Oh, fair enough. Well, Andy, I think we've just about filled up our time. Really? Our time here. Oh, doesn't time fly? It does. When you're having fun <laughs> and you're getting cancelled for your controversial views on the union movement. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to join a movement that would have me, Cam. We'll be back next week. Will we be talking to someone else, Cam? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> Not that I didn't enjoy this chat with you. Yeah, thanks, Cam. I enjoyed now, it with you too. And we'll fill we'll fulfilled our promise of doing a Q and A episode. So, and if people like seriously, if people do have questions, then you know, uh, we'll answer them. We'll try to. Global Indifada is up next. We'll uh, catch you next week. See you later. Bye. Seems like we can simpler mistakes are made again. again.